relationship where you want to grow in faith and confidence in that person, you've got to spend time with them, right? You've got to see them at work, see the interactions, have face-to-face time with them. That's what we call dating. If you're going to spend your life with a person, you spend a lot of face time with them first to kind of see, can I have confidence and faith in them? Do I want to be with them? Do they want to be with me? It is the same thing with God. Jesus never asks you to have blind faith in some mysterious little spiritual thing. He, he puts the evidence in front of you. He puts his word in front of you. And he says, spend time with this. Spend time with me. Look at me. See me on the move. See me in action. And that is what he intends to grow your faith. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. That's kind of what we're doing this spring. Uh, the first week we talked about Jesus in his hometown. Where do your ideas about God come from? If they're not coming from God himself, uh, we get into a lot of trouble. And then last week we talked about Nicodemus, kind of, uh, he watched the YouTube video of how to make yourself right with God, and he tried it at home, right? Like Anna did with the water here. She's here this week. She didn't get mad that I threw her under the bus, so I was happy about that. But he saw that little 10-minute video, and he says, oh, I can do it. I can save myself. I can make myself right with God. I can perform. I can try harder. I can do better next time and be, be right with God. And, and Jesus is like, no, 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 don't try this at home. This, uh, salvation is something God does, not you. It's something he gives you um, freely, like Michael said earlier. And so what that brings us up to tonight is Luke 5. You've got it in front of you. Here's the three points. Number one, desperation. It might point us to Jesus, but the only thing that's going to get you standing in front of Jesus is faith. That's the first point. The second is our biggest problem is inside us, not outside. Or you could say it this way. Let's be a little more bold. Your biggest problem is you. My biggest problem is me, not all of the stuff outside of me uh, swirling around. And then the third point is faith grows as we grow certain about Jesus. And so let's uh, stand up, and uh, I want you to listen for this question as I read the passage. What will Jesus do if you come to him as you are? No matter where you are with Jesus, what will he do? What will he think Or what does he think about you now as you come to him from where you are, wherever you are tonight, and however you are tonight? What is he thinking about you? That's the question I want you to think about as you see another guy in a desperate condition uh, come to Jesus. So, this is Luke 5, 17 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. On one of these days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man or friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, 
And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, this is the kind of Savior that you are. Uh, You are God. You are not just a little miracle worker or a little magician that tweaks the things in our lives to make life easier, but you are God. Come to us to say to us in our paralyzed places, our stuck places, our hopeless and helpless places, get up and walk and live again. So we pray tonight that you would come and do that again because you're not a dead redeemer. You are living forever, uh, reigning right now as king. And so would you do that tonight for us because we need it. We are desperate even if we don't feel it. We ask this all in your name. Amen. All right, take a seat and thanks for standing up. So it's a scary thing when other people begin to get to see you as you really are. Um, All of us in the room, you can probably count on one hand the number of times where people really got to see you for you. You the way you are. And the reason there's so few and far between is that these are the really scary, embarrassing moments. Like, I mean, there's some funny moments too. Like I was in middle school and I still like had a knack for... I don't know, there was a lot of little kids in our neighborhood and we would play like cops and robbers and stuff and I would go around my parents' neighbors' houses and and, like put tickets on their cars and I was in like middle school. And when I got found out for that, I was so ashamed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a sixth grader and I'm going around like in a little policeman's uniform. (laughs) There's embarrassing moments like that, but I'm talking about the moments that you wanted to get out of town. Like the moments where a parent or a friend walks in and interrupts you in the midst of some shameful sexual sin and they never look at you the same and you never look at them the same. Or you just explode in anger and you like curse and melt down like a kid on the cereal aisle and you think nobody's home but then a head pops out of your roommate's room and says, are you all right?" And you're like, oh my gosh, they just saw that. Or, like you just heard my small group announcement, and the thought of going into a room full of strangers and and even entertaining the possibility that people could get to see you as you are or know about you as you are terrifies you. Because what if you risk being the person who isn't seen to have any friends or isn't cool enough or, or whatever, and you want to run away? And those are the kind of um, those are the kind of moments where we're terrified of being seen the way we are. However, I told you those are rare, right? You can probably think of maybe two or three. The reason they're rare is because we have the luxury of um, managing our lives and presenting a, a public image of ourselves that is really clean, really strong, really put together. Like Facebook's been around 12 or 15 years now, and it's still the fad of taking a picture of yourself alone on a Friday night and saying, my friends didn't call again. That fad still hasn't caught on. No one posts those pictures. <laughs> Even though everybody in the room has those kind of nights every now and then or, or all the time. We don't, we don't talk about the weak, confused moments where I don't know what to do. The Instagram pictures are all the nice sunset pictures, the strong pictures, the pictures with friends smiling in them. We don't tell stories about the kind of stories I just talked about that we can list on one hand. We don't go there. We can delete our internet browser histories and so we can look like people of integrity because no one's ever going to see where we were because we can hit the button that says erase the browsing history. And so we have the luxury to be uh, clean people, strong people, put together people, people who know what we're doing. 
which means it's going to be really hard for us to identify with what I just read from Luke 5 because that is not a clean, put-together, strong, presentable guy, is it? You talk about a desperate character, he fits the bill. And so he, is a, he didn't have the luxury of living the way we live where we get to present a front, a well-crafted image. He, his life was a billboard for everybody in his town to see. He literally lived his life in the dirt about an inch between him and the mud, literally, his whole life, lived on a mat. He's a paralytic. Keep in mind, this is before wheelchairs, before the little motorized scooters, before live-in nurses or home health care. And so if this guy wanted to do anything at all, use the bathroom, get outside, go to the warm springs to put his legs in, if he wanted to do anything, guess what he was dependent upon? Either some family who enjoyed being tethered to a paralytic and always having to carry him around, probably not many of those, or friends in his little village who would, who would pick him up, two or three friends every time he wanted to go somewhere, pick up his sheet and have to carry a limp body across town and put him down. And guess what? If they forgot to come get him that night, guess where he slept? And add on top of all of the inconveniences of being a paralytic in a pre-medicine age... Add on top of that this. In that culture, deformity, blindness, deafness, sickness, paralysis was all attributed to sin. If you're a paralytic, you're a paralytic because either you did something horrific against God or your parents did and you're being cursed for it. And so this guy, not only is he a paralytic living in the first century, he is also a little object lesson for every mommy and daddy that passes him on the street and tells little Timmy, little Timmy, obey the Lord or else you'll end up like this guy too. Because that's what happens when God curses you. Talk about a guy who had all of his shame, all of his weakness, all of his desperation as a billboard before Everybody, And this is small town Israel. Everything, everybody knows everything. And that's his life. And that's this character. And so the question we've got to start with is, can you relate to that at all? If you're like me, it's really hard. I mean, it, maybe hearing the context and the story helps you dig down a little bit deeper. But I think there's two reasons why we have a hard time relating to a guy like this. And, and one is we deny our desperation. And the other is we distract ourselves from it. A country, a culture, a university that are all singing in chorus. You're fine. You're fine. You're okay. You're not desperate. And so we're strong people. It's not just that like we all decided I want to be presentable and strong on, uh, in, in kind of in my public persona. It's just we're playing the cultural game. That's what everybody does. And the question is, does your Facebook page, do your prayer requests in your small group reflect a person who people really pray for you because they say, dang, that guy needs help? Or do they reflect a person who says, that guy, man, what an awesome guy. He's fine. He's so solid, so steady. Do your prayer requests say, I'm fine, or do they say, I'm desperate? Your Facebook page, does it say, I'm fine, I'm desperate? Look, mine says I'm fine. I'm not, like, saying, oh, you people. Like, this is me. This is the way we do life. I'm just saying the reason we don't feel desperate is we deny it, and we distract ourselves from it, right? We have more resources at our disposal to distract ourselves from our desperation, to keep it at bay than anybody ever before. 
And so anytime those thoughts come creeping in, and what I mean by desperation is being at the end of your rope, not having the resources to do what you got to do to get through in life. Knowing that you don't measure up. That's what desperation is. Being at the end of your rope. Being weak. Being fragile. Anytime those thoughts come in, we have tons of places to run to distract ourselves from that. And I always quote Flannery O'Connor, but this is so good, I just have to say it again. She said, ours is a generation that has domesticated despair, or you could say has domesticated desperation and learned to live with it happily. And so we don't even see it for what it is anymore. It's just the backdrop of our lives. It feels normal now. But we don't feel needy before God. And we wonder why we don't pray. We wonder why church is kind of a negotiable thing. Like, I don't really need to be around many Christians. Because I don't feel needy. I don't feel desperate. Unlike this guy, who because of his paralysis is always very in tune with his desperation. A man desperate before Jesus. And a man, just like you and I, who's asked, having to wrestle with the question, what is God going to do when he sees me as I am? Literally right before his eyes. He doesn't know he's God at first. He finds out pretty soon after, right? As he's saying, if I were this guy, I think I would be like, oh, wait, you're forgiving my, you're talking about my sin? You're God? Uh, I'll take the paralysis and go. Never mind. I don't want you to see right through me and know everything about me. Uh, Just, just let me go and let me have my peace. But this guy actually is having to deal with the fact, what is God going to do when he sees you as you are? Which is the question I put to you earlier. And so keep that in the forefront of your mind. The first point, we'll talk about desperation. It may point you to Jesus, and that's a good thing. Desperation points you. It points the way to Jesus. But only faith will walk you to Jesus. Only faith will get you to Jesus. How do we know this guy's about this guy's desperation. Like, he could have been a cynic. He could have been the guy who's like, you know, I've been a paralytic my whole life. I'm just going to deal with it. No hope. I don't know. Maybe that was him. Maybe he was, like, always hoping for a cure or whatever. But what we do know is if you have a Bible, a few verses before what your bulletin starts at, Luke says, word of Jesus and his healings was going throughout all the land, like the way it would today if that kind of thing happened. Everybody was talking about it, and he catches word of it. And he gets his friends and he says, we're going to this guy. This is my chance. Because everybody else who's been a paralytic, everyone else who's been blind or deaf has been crossing paths with him. And and they're getting better. All of this bad stuff is getting reversed. And I'm going to go make a beeline for him. And so his desperation pointed him to Jesus and Jesus' resources. um, And his faith, the faith of the friends, uh, walked him there. And so, think about this. What if he had denied that desperation? What if he had distracted himself from that desperation? Where would he be? Do you see what role desperation plays? Here's why this, I'm even talking about this in a sermon. Because it's kind of like, well, duh. If you feel needy, you go to people who provide. The reason we got to talk about it in a sermon is because we push against this and we call it bad. And we don't, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about weakness, about desperation. But we have to because... It's, it's the thing that, it's the catalyst that points you in his direction. And if, if, you, if you deny it, all you ever have is yourself and your coping mechanisms, your medications to keep life going, uh, however, however you figured out to do it. And so desperation can be a good thing. There's an old Puritan pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford. He used to say, my needs are my greatest riches. 
for it is they that carry me to Christ. See how he saw something that most of us would grumble about and try to compensate for. And he said, no, 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 my needs, my desperation is my greatest rich, my greatest riches, because it is precisely that that carries me to Jesus. And therefore, it is riches. It's something valuable, something to be talked about and owned. But desperation alone doesn't do much for us, does it? Because there's plenty of desperate people who never end up in front of the one who can heal them. And so faith uh, comes into play as well. And imagine the scene. Like, this is different because the buildings back then are, I mean, kind of like what houses in Crucis look like. Adobe with palm branches and, like, mud on the rooftops. And these guys, they're, they're, a few of these guys carrying his sheet. They get to the house. It's a, uh, uh, what's the word? No seats crowd. Like everybody's standing up. The, the doorway is filled up. And all of a sudden, the first the crowd knows about it is little mud starts raining down and everyone's like, what? Jesus is giving a sermon inside. And they're like, oh my gosh. They are digging a hole through the roof. And the way it would interrupt what we're doing right now would interrupt that as well. And their faith doesn't stop at anything. And they're digging through a stranger's roof to drop a guy, like belaying a guy down in the middle of a sermon. You're like, what? Now, here are the options. Either they are lunatics or they are dead certain at the outcome if Jesus sees their friend. Either they are crazy stupid or they are brilliant. Those are the two options. The same way if it happened right now. Now, here's the thing. Have you ever seen the movie... Um, 127 Hours. It's about a climber named Aaron Ralston. Uh, And the movie came out a year or two ago. And this guy is uh, hiking in a slot canyon, really narrow slot canyon, I believe in Utah or somewhere, I don't know, Utah, Colorado. Uh, And he's out there by himself. I don't think he's, he's not left word with anybody about where he is. And he's in the slot canyon and a gigantic boulder ships weight and pins his arm against the wall. And he's there for a couple of days, and then he's realizing, I'm becoming dehydrated, I'm hallucinating. And then he's realizing, I don't have any food, and then he's realizing, nobody knows where I am. And pretty quickly, the numbers add up, and he realizes, I'm a dead man unless I get free from being pinned behind this rock. And I won't go into detail about what he does beyond saying he ends up cutting his arm off, breaking the bone, cutting his arm off. Now... If you're a fly on the wall watching Aaron Ralston saw away his arm and push a boulder away and get out of there, you're either concluding the guy is nuts or you're concluding the guy is dead certain that if he gets free, he lives. That's what faith is. Faith isn't this mushy, hopeful thinking, wishful thinking, I hope God will act. Maybe God might act. Faith is certainty. It's not mushy hope. It is certainty. The way these guys are willing to destroy a person's house and risk utter embarrassment and rejection by lowering their buddy down in front of a sermon, in front of Jesus. They risk it all. And their action only makes sense if they were dead certain that Jesus would do what he said he would do. And he ends up doing more. But that's what faith is. And so when you, think about, when you think about faith, do you think about kind of wishful thinking? I pray because maybe God might hear. Or do you pray because you know 
God has filled the Bible with promises. When you pray, I lean forward, I listen, I hear, I act. Maybe not in ways you can see, but every time. Do you talk about the gospel because you believe the Spirit works through that? Or are we timid because what if God doesn't follow through? What if He doesn't back me up and I'm left looking like an idiot with my friend here? Guys, I'm you. That's how I operate. Timid. Prayers seem inconsequential a lot of times. Why? Because we have a small Jesus. Because we don't really believe he's going to come through. And I'm I'm not sure if any of us would have dug a hole in a guy's roof to drop a friend down. But these guys were certain of it the way Aaron Ralston was certain about, if I get to the trailhead, I live. That wasn't wishful, hopeful thinking. Oh, if I could maybe get out there, maybe someone will. He knew it. He knows uh, runners frequent those trails. And so he had to get back there. And so if, if we look at... If our faith is small, if our faith is fickle, which it is for everybody, it says something about how big Jesus is to us, how competent Jesus is to us, how faithful Jesus is to us. And if it's big, it says something about that too. If our prayers are robust, are energetic, if our talking about the gospel, if our pouring ourselves into the Christian life, putting all of our eggs in his basket then it shows we have a very big Jesus. Otherwise, it shows we have a very small Jesus, and that actually keeps us from him. And so we got to keep our eyes on that. Uh, Now, I'll make a caveat on our last point. We're going to come circle back and finish when we talk about prayer. But let me say this, too. i got to push this home. Faith deals with certainty, not possibilities. It deals with certainty. Paul says in, uh, in Romans 4.20, he's talking about Abraham, the father of the faith, and all the promises that Abraham believed about God giving him a child. And he says, No unbelief made Abraham waver considering the promise of God, but Abraham grew strong in faith as he glorified God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he said he would do, what he promised to do. That is why faith was counted to, as uh, righteousness. And then the writer of Hebrews says, Faith is the assurance Assurance, not wishful thinking, assurance of things hoped for, things promised. The conviction, if I get to the trailhead, there's life. If I get to Jesus, there's healing. If I get to Jesus, there's forgiveness. The conviction of things not seen. So we've got to go back to the drawing board with the way we think about faith. It's not this mushy, mystical thing. It's a certainty based on evidence. It's not blind. It's based on evidence. Jesus is saying, look at me, time and time and time and time and time again. Watch me and let the evidence connect the dots for you that I am faithful. I am where I say I'll be. I I do what I say I'll do for you. And he's saying, add up the numbers and do the math. You can trust me. And when we put faith in other stuff too, we got to crunch the numbers and see whether it adds up the other gods, the other things we put our hope in. That's not blind faith either, Uh, the other things that we pursue. And so, uh, I'll wrap up this point about faith, uh, but just saying this, uh, this kind of wraps it up and summarizes it. The bigger your object of faith, the smaller you'll find the obstacles to getting to that object. Let me put it this way. The bigger Jesus is to you, the smaller the obstacles in between you and him are going to be. Some of you put up with crazy persecution from friends and family because you follow Jesus. 
And the reason those obstacles seem, which seem insurmountable, the reason they seem a little bit smaller to you is because Jesus is that much bigger and more beautiful and powerful. And you see the fingerprints of his work all over your life. And you're like, no doubt. Of course. I'll take whatever persecution comes. And then for some of us on the other side, prayer is a gigantic obstacle between us and the, and the work that the Lord is doing through us. Because it, it, it does cost time. It does cost energy. But if Jesus is kind of incompetent and AWOL and sometimes there, sometimes not, man, nothing discourages prayer like that, right? I mean, you all know like I do. The object of your faith has everything to do with how big the obstacles between you and him are. The bigger Jesus is, the smaller the obstacles that get in the way between you and him. The smaller Jesus is, the bigger the obstacles get in the way between you and him. And so it really is personal. It all gets back to who we say he is and what we say he's like. Which pushes us to our second point, which is Jesus' response. And he says something like this, and this is really, really big to get. Because Jesus looks at a paralytic, literally, the moment's dramatic, and he hits the ground. And his limp body is laying there, and everybody in the room, the paralytic included, is on the edge of their chair, and they know exactly what the situation calls for. Is Jesus going to heal this guy's paralysis? And he says something out of left field. And people are like, uh, come again? Because he says, son, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And I'm like, uh, that's great. I came for this. (laughs) And he ends up doing that a little bit later, but to prove the first point that his sins are forgiven. And so what, what can we take away from this? Because Luke is saying, with all of these stories, see yourself in this. Luke is saying, we're the, we're the paralytic in a sense. See yourself in this. So here's what we take out of it. Paralysis isn't this guy's biggest problem. And clarity about God's will isn't your biggest problem. Or a backache isn't your biggest problem. Or depression isn't your biggest problem. Or anxiety isn't your biggest problem. Or roommate issues isn't your biggest problem. Or your parents' struggling or failed marriage isn't your biggest problem. Your sickness isn't your biggest problem. Finding out what to do as a vocation isn't your biggest problem. The fractured relationship with your God who made you for the singular purpose of loving Him and loving, loving Him is fractured. And that bone has got to be reset if there's going to be any weight put on it at all. That's our biggest problem. Do you know what a triage nurse is? You ever been to the hospital and you go in saying, Ah, my leg hurts really bad. I want to get my leg fixed. And the nurse is like... Uh, You can wait a few hours on that. Or they send you to some other doctor and you're like, why am I here? A triage nurse's job is to intercept you in your moment of need and to help you prioritize what your true needs are. And so, you know, you have people who have really nasty falls. They fall off a ladder or something and they come into the ER and their leg is clearly broken. And she starts poking around their belly and, and rushes them upstairs. And they're like, why are we going to the ER? My leg is broken. She says, because internal bleeding is going to kill you. Your leg is a distant concern. That's, what this, that's what's going on in this moment. This guy's being lowered before Jesus, and Jesus, just like he does with you, is doing triage. What is the most pressing, immediate, urgent dysfunction or, or problem or dislocation in your life? 
And he says, he he starts talking about sin. He starts talking about desperate conditions, desperate situations. A a paralysis far more profound than just your legs don't move. But a paralysis of your soul where you can't do anything. And Jesus looks at that just like the triage nurse. And he says, that's where I'm going to start. So do you get the parallel to our lives? What takes up the most time in our interactions with God, our prayers to God, our expectations for what God's doing in our lives. Is it all those other things that I mentioned that he does care about? Hear that clearly. He cares about all of that. He really does. And he says he will meet you in those places, but it's not your primary point of contact with your God. And especially if you don't know Jesus and you try to make some other point of contact, the first thing you want to talk about, he is never going to make sense to you. The Bible's never going to make sense to you. Because you're going to be over here, Lord, 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 help me with clarity, help me with clarity, and you're dead. He's like, no, 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 no. Internal bleeding. We're not going to deal with a sprained ankle right now. And so, just like we said, your thoughts about Jesus have to come from Jesus, so also your thoughts about what Jesus is doing in you have to come uh, from Jesus. He's, He's getting at something deeper than those other things. And so, if you want Christianity to make sense, you've got to know that the first place God is going to go with us is setting the bone, that fractured bone of our relationship with Him. Uh, And and resetting it, because we tend to throw it back out of socket for those of us who are walking with Him. And so grace is your primary point of contact with God. Did you hear that? Whether you've been a Christian your whole life and don't know a day you haven't known Him, or whether you don't know where you are them right now, grace is your meeting place between you and God. Grace through Jesus. And this is the kind of grace I'm talking about. You remember what I asked you earlier. What is God thinking? What's he going to do when he sees you as you are? In your moment of exposure, where you can't control the variables, you're just naked and exposed, what is he going to think? What's he going to do? Grace looks at you and doesn't blink. Grace looks at you as you are and doesn't run away. Grace looks at you and doesn't gossip. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't gossip about you behind your back. What an idiot. Can you believe he did that? No gossip. Honor. That's what grace does. It looks at you intently. And it says in the midst of all the crap, your sins are forgiven for you. That's what grace does, is it handles the fine china of your life. And it's what uh, Jasmine read earlier in Isaiah 44, grace that blots out your transgressions. You've got to write that down, you've got to go read that passage, and you've got to let it sink in, because it, it flies right over us. It'll change your life if that sinks in even an inch. So this is God's agenda. Here's what I meant earlier. If you get this, it makes all the sense in the world. If you don't get it, you're going to be really confused. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and then we hit our, our final uh, brief third point. C.S. Lewis says, imagine you're a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. It makes sense to you. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought he was building Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and spires, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. 
But he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. The paralytic asked for a new kitchen. Jesus gave him a palace. What do you ask for? What do you want from God? Don't settle for the kitchen. Ask for the palace. He gives you the palace, and he'll come and live in it. That's what the passage is about. The third point is quick, because we've already talked about it. Are you feeling desperate at this point? Are you feeling like, man, I don't feel desperate. I don't feel needy before God. All of this gospel stuff that I've been hearing so long, it's kind of in one ear and out the other. It doesn't move my heart and grip me the way that it used to. If you feel that way, you've got great reason to be desperate, don't you? Isn't that great cause to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. My heart is a rock again. I settle for little bathroom innervations and kitchens again. Have mercy, Jesus. The way the paralytic called out, if you will, touch me and heal me. So if you're not desperate, you see, you have great cause to be desperate. And if you are desperate, praise God, because it points you to Jesus and faith walks your feet right to the one who heals you and puts you back together. And so, if you're feeling that desperation, how does your faith grow? How does our faith grow? It's really easy. It's as we look at Jesus and our certainty about him grows. That's how faith grows. If you know much about the Gospel of Luke, here's the point. He says it in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. He said, I wrote this book for a dude named Theophilus, a Greek guy. And he said, I wrote it, Theophilus, so that you might be certain in what you've already heard. Which means this is a guy that's been going to church too. His faith is shaky. He comes to RUF one week and he feels like he's on fire. Two weeks later, he couldn't care less at the good things being told from the pulpit. That's Theophilus. That's you. That's me. And Luke said, I wrote these stories, I recorded these stories carefully so that you might see Jesus in them and grow in certainty and faith. And that's the point of miracles like this. Miracles, the Bible calls them semeon or sign. They're signs. They point away from themselves to who Jesus is. And the, the question about the, the point of the miracles is like, hello, who do you think this is? If he's walking on water, raising dead people, saying your sins are forgiven, feeding bread out of two fish and five loaves, raising up from the dead. That's what the miracles are there for. It's like, this is the creator. He usually works this way. He's perfectly free to work outside of those normal ways if he wants to. And Jesus does that here, healing the paralytic. And the question for all of us is, take another look at Jesus wherever you are tonight. Wherever you are tonight, take another look at Jesus. Take a look at how you approach him. Take a look at your desperation. And know that when you come, or when you bring your friends to him, he will show mercy to any who come to him in desperation. And so the the quality of your faith doesn't really matter, and the quantity of your faith doesn't matter. It's the presence of that faith. John Calvin used to say, it doesn't matter if you leap or you walk or you crawl or you barely move. As long as you're moving towards Jesus, that is faith to celebrate. Don't get caught up on the strength of the quality of your faith. Look at Jesus and you'll find it growing. And you'll find yourself moving towards the one who continues to heal you, continues to release you from paralysis that we experience our own. We sang the song earlier, He is willing, He is willing, He is able, doubt no more. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Come ye sinners, poor and weary.
Jesus, ready, stands to save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have really set the table well to say that we are desperate tonight. We're tired physically, we're tired spiritually, uh, and we need you. And we pray that in the midst of our need, and we expect and we know that when weary people come to you, uh, you bear their burdens and you give them rest. And so uh, would you say over us again, um, would you show us that you receive us in love and in grace uh, the way you receive this paralytic? We uh, ask this in your name that we would change and bring glory to you because of it. Amen.